0: Welcome to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, we're always looking for ways to thank you, our patrons, for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible. And this is one of those ways. We reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we get, always get so many great responses. And so that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So without further ado, let's jump right in to the very first question. Uh, the first question comes from Bebelbrox, who writes, I'm a fan of deep dive episodes. I'd love to see your take on the Jersey Devil of Leeds Point. It may be too regional, I don't know, but I once started doing research on the subject and was surprised by how much material there was, including but not limited to newspaper headlines. If it's not a meaty enough subject, perhaps the Jersey Devil could play a role in a wider show about regional cryptozoology stories. On that point, I'd be curious to hear Jimmy's analysis and or speculation about why regional monster stories seem to exist anywhere humans gather, what it may say about us and our relationship and awareness of God in things spiritual. Uh,
1: so, first of all, for people who may not be aware, the Jersey Devil is a cryptid animal, at least that's how it's typically reported, that is said to uh, be present in part of New Jersey, and we'll have a link to a page on the Jersey Devil so you can read about it. There's also an X-Files very early X-Files episode about the Jersey Devil, although it doesn't interpret it as an animal, but like as a primitive human. Um, in any event, which is not consistent with the standard folklore is my understanding. Um, And I've had the Jersey Devil on the big list uh, for ages since we first started the show. So it's one of the cryptids I plan to investigate and cover one day, Um, probably at as its own episode, given the amount of information that there is out there on it. But it could be part of another episode. Um, in terms of why there are regional monster stories wherever there are humans, I think that there are a number of reasons. Some of them off the top of my head would be the fact that humans, wherever they go, encounter animals and they don't always view these animals under optimal conditions. They may see them in the dark. Uh, They may see them at a distance. They may see them in the fog. They may see them when they're drunk. Um, And all of those things that can affect optimal viewing conditions can result in humans misperceiving the animals that they're encountering now if they have regular clear encounters then the animal tends to be known you know so we, people have had regular clear encounters with lions and tigers and bears oh my so yeah so <laughs> lions and tigers and bears are known but um if they don't have uh, such encounters if they encounter something and they're not sure what it is it can give rise to a legend about a cryptid. And sometimes there are cryptids that are encountered that are, are genuinely unknown to the people, uh, to people in some area um, and, and are seen clearly uh, that the mountain gorilla is a classic example of that. It was known to the people lo- locally where the mountain gorilla lives in Africa, but it was not known to, to scientists more broadly. And so it was at one time a cryptid that was eventually discovered. Um, Another factor that plays a role, I think, in local monster stories is um, the discovery of fossils. Now, a fossil does not mean petrified. Petrified means something has turned to stone and dinosaur bones are 60 million or more years old. So they've turned to stone, the ones we have. But technically, a fossil is anything that's been in the ground for 10,000 years or more. And so people have been finding not only dinosaur bones everywhere, but also the bones of, for, of other unknown animals that are unknown because they're extinct. And so those bones can also give rise, or sometimes carcasses, and those can give rise to, uh, to cryptid uh, monster stories, too. Um, in particular, the megafauna that existed during the Paleolithic age, this is where we had a lot of large animals um, that were around a few tens of thousands of years ago, and that lasted into the human period um also we find their bones people have always been finding their bones and so they can uh, also be responsible for some of these stories and in fact given the persistence of memory that can happen with tradition especially if there's some reinforcement of the tradition like finding the bones of these things some of them could be based on memories of actual human encounters with the megafauna and yes our ancestors undoubtedly played a role in why the megafauna are not here yet, it may not have been just our ancestors, but the fact our ancestors um were encountering these large animals is part of why they're not there because the fact was they were tasty, <laughs> and so our animals hunted them um and thus decreased their populations but uh i think I think the discovery of artifacts like fossils and also encountering genuine creatures, but under suboptimal viewing conditions are some of the major reasons for cryptid stories, apart from the fact that there are genuinely still undiscovered animals uh, on Earth, although most of the undiscovered ones tend to be either in very remote locations or very small.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Rick Angelini. He says, I'm patiently waiting for an episode or episodes on the Shroud of Turin. This one is just begging for a faith and reason analysis. I hope that Jimmy the Time Lord can find time to do the research for this one.
1: Well, I I have been doing a little bit of research already, and the plan is to have that out this year. Uh, meaning 2022. Uh, The Shroud of Turin has been requested by one of our patrons who donates at a level where they get to pick an episode topic, uh, you know, arranged by mutual agreement, and they picked that one. So we are going to be doing it. The plan is to do it this year. Uh, I still have a lot of research to do, um, but uh, we will be doing it. And thank you for your patience. And thank you also to the patron who requested it. Uh, I do want to set expectations about how we're gonna handle the shroud, so as of right now, I do not have a settled opinion on whether the shroud is uh, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ or not. I'm genuinely open to both options, as I always try to be before I've researched a subject. Um, and I also laying my cards on the table, I want it to be the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. However, Just because I want something to be true doesn't mean that I'm going to skew the evidence to get to that conclusion. I really try on this subject, as in every other subject, to check my confirmation bias and not allow myself to be guided by it. So just because I want it to be true does not mean I'm going to go any easier on the shroud than I would anything else. Also, as an apologist, I have a whole additional dimension through which or additional lens that I look at the shroud through, which is in terms of its apologetic value, because there are folks who, as Christian apologists, whether they're Protestant or Catholic, will say um, this is evidence of the truth of Christianity. And that may be true. And one day we may be able to make that argument with some confidence. The problem is right now, the carbon-14 testing that was done does not point to this being a first-century artifact. Now, there are counter-arguments that says the carbon testing was done wrong or it wasn't reliable for one reason or another, but the mere fact that there was this carbon-14 test, or set of tests, actually, that were done at the same time by different institutions that all pointed to a medieval origin Um, or that pointed to a medieval origin is something that can immediately be thrown in the face of any apologist who tries to present this as evidence for the Christian faith by a skeptic. And so the skeptic is going to say, hey, you're claiming this stuff, but the science says, says no. No. And at that point, the Christian apologist is at a severe tactical disadvantage because probably neither he nor the skeptic nor anyone else listening to the conversation is an expert in carbon-14 dating. And so not only does he have to mount a counter case that it is really first century, he also has to deal with the fact neither of us are experts and Under normal situations, both of us should be deferring to experts. And then it becomes a dueling experts um, situation that is inconclusive. And so um, I try to do, to practice what I call bulletproof apologetics, where if I'm talking to someone and trying to convince them of something, you know, like the truth of the Christian faith, I try to strip away all of the weaker arguments and focus on the bulletproof ones, the ones that really stand up uh, to uh, skeptical cross-examination. And so for that reason, um, I would hesitate, given the present state of evidence regarding the Shroud, to present it as a proof of the Christian faith. I, My position would be essentially, at present, what the church has taken as its position, which is, this is a fascinating image that we can use to bring us spiritually closer to Christ, but we're not saying it is the authentic burial shroud of Christ. Um, And I don't want to bring disrepute on the Christian faith by appealing to things that are um, going to be perceived as you're just twisting the evidence because you want to see it that way. Fortunately, um, radiocarbon dating is, or and uh, radiometric dating in general is always improving and we may get future and better tests of the shroud in the future that could help us settle this question.
0: All right. Daniel Stareznik, sorry, Daniel, if I mispronounced your name, says, uh, Jimmy, I love your podcast. Thank you for your dedication to truth, goodness, and beauty. My question, if we become one flesh when married and if we rejoin our flesh in the end, How can we not be married in heaven? Well, we
1: know that we're not because Jesus tells us that we're not. But the question then becomes a theoretical one of how do we explain this? And I think that that the answer... Uh, can be found by looking at a couple of points of data. Uh, the first point of data that needs to be looked at is what does Genesis mean when it says that uh, that uh, husband and wife become one flesh? Well, clearly, they don't merge into one physical body. And so, Um, they're not literally becoming one flesh. This is some kind of metaphor. And any kind of metaphor, anything that's not literally true means it conveys a truth, but it also has limits that should it, that it should not be pressed beyond. And that brings us to our second point of data, which is the fact that all the way down through, through, uh, redemption history, so all the way through the Bible, including the New Testament, it was recognized that if a spouse dies, you are no longer bound to that spouse, and it is perfectly fine to remarry. And not just in the case of men who in the Old Testament could take multiple wives. This was true of women as well. If a woman's husband dies, she can marry another man without committing adultery. This is something St. Paul is explicit about in Romans 7. And so as a result, we have, uh, we have evidence that the marital bond dissolves at death, and therefore you are no longer one flesh with this person and are free to marry someone else. And so as a result of this, we can see that whatever the one flesh metaphor is referring to, and there are different possibilities about how you can interpret it, but however it's understood, it's a union that dissolves at death, and therefore people are free to remarry. And consequently, when you show up in heaven and get your own personal flesh back, you are not married at that point. And Jesus tells us we will not go on to get married because it won't be necessary. We'll be like the angels of heaven. We'll be immortal beings that don't need to reproduce. And we won't have um, uh, the, kinds of the same kind of passions that we do in this life. And we'll have all the love and fulfillment from God and the saints, including our former spouses that we need. And marriage will not Need to play a role anymore.
0: Okay. Patrick writes, "Uh, Thank you for answering my question last time y'all did one of these shows. I found your answer both thoughtful and well reasoned and mirroring some of my own issues with how people bandy about the word addiction. On to my next question Is there a good list or collection somewhere out there of the pseudepigrapha, apocrypha that get referenced in the books of the Bible or are otherwise Bible adjacent? If so, what is it? I'm looking for something like Jimmy's book, The Father Knows Best, The Fathers Know Best, listing of sources used to compile that book. I've been using that source list to read the church fathers and at the same time would also like to pick up reading the pseudepigrapha or apocryphal texts, especially from well-translated sources. I have a feeling that Jimmy has a source list because of his recent articles in Catholic Answers magazine. Bonus points if the collection includes good commentary. Thank you again for the work y'all do. So um, the place that I go
1: for most of the apocryphal, pseudepigraphal books is actually Bible software. I am a heavy user of Logos Bible software. You can um, go to Logos, L-O-G-O-S dot com. And they have tons and tons and tons and tons of electronic uh, books uh, that are Bible or Bible adjacent, including uh collections of apocryphal, pseudepigraphal works. Um, The pseudepigrapha, so you should probably define these terms. Um, In Protestant vocabulary, the term apocrypha is used for what Catholics and Orthodox would refer to sometimes as the deuterocanonical books of the Old Testament. Um, But there are other works that are also called apocryphal that are books that in, in Catholic jargon that are not part of the Bible, but were written in the same general time frame um, and that have connections with either the Old or the New Testament. Some works are then known as pseudepigraphal. Pseudepigraphal is a word that comes from, um, from Greek that means written under a pen name or written under a false name. So sometimes in the ancient world, people would attribute, would write a book, and then they would attribute it to some like famous ancient person to get respect for it. Uh, First Enoch is an example of this, where this book was written in the centuries immediately preceding Christ, but it's attributed to the uh, patriarch Enoch, who lived in very early in in Genesis. Um, and that elevates the book and gets it respect. That was why they did that in the ancient world. But uh, these books can be very interesting. And uh, there are collections of them available, uh, either electronically or in uh, paper form. And we'll have a set of links to where you can get some of them in paper form. You can also find the same things pretty much uh, or many of them, I mean, certainly the same ancient documents at Logos.com. One collection of them is R.H. Charles's collection, R.H. Charles, the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament in English. And it does have like introductions and commentary notes. Also, James H. Charles Worth's Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. There's a two volume collection of that. Louis Feldman et al.'s uh, uh, three-volume collection, Outside the Bible, Ancient Jewish Writings Related to Scripture. Bart Ehrman's Lost Scriptures, books that did not make it into the New Testament, and uh, Ehrman and Pless's The Other Gospels, Accounts of Jesus from Outside the New Testament. We'll have links to all of those on Amazon, and uh, you can, like I said, also find similar things at Logos. Most of these volumes, well, basically any scholarly volume like this is going to contain at least brief introduction and commentary on these ancient books that it's covering. Um, and there are some more detailed commentaries available on on some of these. Um, there's more such commentaries being written these days. Actually, First Enoch got a slot in a one-volume Bible commentary, my memory is that the Erdman's, the current Erdman's one-volume Bible commentary actually includes a commentary on, a brief commentary on First Enoch because of how uh, significant First Enoch was in early Christianity. It's even quoted in the book of Jude. Um, so, uh, so that has been, attra- First Enoch's been attracting a lot more attention recently. Also, the Hermeneia Commentary Series has begun uh, uh, publishing full commentaries, large scholarly commentaries on some of these books. I know they have one on on First Enoch. That's a two-volume commentary on First Enoch. I believe they have one on Jubilees if I remember correctly, and they have a few others as well that they've been coming out with. So those are full volume, uh, full scholarly commentaries. And then there are also many monographs that are written on these books. Monographs will not be a commentary on the whole book, but they will like treat a theme from one of these books. Like I remember uh, reading Richard Baucom's, uh Richard Balcom has one on the fate of the dead uh, in works like, um the ascension of isaiah which is a new testament pseudepigrapha um and things like that i know Baucom has 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 one on on the deals with uh the ascension of isaiah so there's a lot of stuff out there and the best place to kind of do searches for that after you've gotten a collection or two of these things is is to, is to use logos um also do note that the, the pseudepigrapha tends to be, and the Apocrypha tends to be distinguished between those works that are connected to the Old Testament, like First Enoch, and those that are connected to the New Testament, like the Ascension of Isaiah. Um, so you will find collections that tend to focus on either the Old Testament Apocrypha or the New Testament Apocrypha.
0: All right. Uh, Christopher Urasco asks, of all the cryptids, Mothman, Bigfoot, Skunk, Ape, Yeti, etc., which do you think is most likely to exist and which one would you want to exist?
1: Oh, I'd want them all to exist. Uh, Bigfoot, <laughs> L- L- Loch Ness Monster, every. I shoot I'd love them all to exist. In terms of which do I. Th- think is most likely to exist? Well, I think some of these cryptids do exist, but they are known animals that have been misidentified. Like I talked about earlier about viewing animals that are known to science under suboptimal viewing conditions. And an example of that is Mothman. Mothman has at least a significant likelihood of, and I don't know that I would say a probability, but it has at least a significant possibility of actually being a miss sighting or set of miss sightings of sandhill cranes, which are about the right size and have a similar build to what Mothman is reported to be. Um, by the way, while I'm thinking about it, there's a um, there's a podcast called This Paranormal Life Uh, That's done by some guys down in Australia, if I recall correctly. And they have, they begin each episode by kind of shouting out a series of questions related to paranormal topics. And my favorite question I haven't heard a huge number of episodes of this podcast, but my favorite question that they have handled, which I've used on Facebook myself, I was so taken by it is are zoo animals just monsters that we've captured? (laughs) And and yes, they are. Zoo animals are just monsters that we've captured. Um, And so if there are other unknown monsters, one day they could be just Okay, that's a zoo animal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In terms of where I think cryptids are likely to be found, um, there's only there, there only, and it's going to depend on what you mean by large. If you mean larger than human, like Bigfoot, the only place on Earth that you're likely to find unknown animals that are larger than humans is the ocean. because the ocean is the only place we haven't gotten a pretty good handle on in terms of exploration, in terms of the life that lives there. There's still a lot we don't know about the ocean. Um, If you mean smaller than human, but still big... Um, you know, so something like a chupacabra sized or, you know, the size of a lion or something. Well, there are remote parts of the world, particularly in uh, wilderness jungle areas that are harder for humans that not many humans live there, um, that could have, I mean, they're always, they'll periodically find a new species of goat or, you know, a new species of aardvark or something like that, um, in in these locations. And so they can still be around on land, but in in remoter places. But frankly, the smaller the cryptid is, the better, because the smaller it is, the less chance we will have identified it. And in fact, the vast majority of cryptids are microscopic. We are only beginning to understand the different species of uh, microorganisms. And there are tons of microorganism cryptids out there. But hopefully there are some bigger, interesting ones, and we will continue to
0: cover cryptids in the future. Jordan S. asks, my question for you today is, have you heard of the Didache and why did the early church fathers write it?
1: Yeah, no, I I know the Didache quite well. Um, I first read it like 35 years ago when I was a fairly new Christian and just started reading the early... Christian writings, um, what the Didache is. Now, Didache is a Greek word that means teaching. And so the Didache presents itself as the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, not saying it was literally written by the Twelve Apostles, but it conveys the sense of what the Twelve Apostles taught. And it's been argued that the Didache in particular was written to help Gentile Christians, Uh, people who were coming from a non-Jewish background, and it was helping them understand, so what do I need to do as a Christian? And basically, the Didache is, it's often described as a church manual because a lot of the things it deals with are, um, uh, it matters of basic Christian instruction and what to do in church and things like that. It begins with an opening section on morality. And this is... often referred to as the two ways section. It presents like the way of light and versus the way of darkness. So here are all the things you do want to do. Here are the things you don't want to do. And this is not unique to the Didache. We have other examples of two ways literature, Uh, but the Didache does begin with such a section. And so the idea is for people not already tutored in the Mosaic law, here are the basics of Christian morality. And especially as they would apply to a Gentile. So like circumcision is not there. Um, Then it proceeds to talk about Christian initiation. It has information on baptism and how you baptize people. And it has information on the Eucharist and what you do in the Eucharist. And it ends up with it also has a section on prayer how to do basic Christian prayer, and then it ends up with a section on eschatology, on, on on prophecy about things that were still in the future and how the world will end and stuff like that. And it's a fascinating document. It probably dates from the first century, and there may have been an original edition of it that was around by maybe A.D. 50, Because one of the things that you find in the Didache is it has tests not only for telling whether a prophet is genuine, a genuine prophet of God or not, it also has tests to tell whether an apostle is a genuine apostle of God or not. And that suggests that at least one version, the original version of the Didache was written when there were still apostles traveling around and you needed to be able to tell the good ones from the bad ones. Also, uh, the Didache is noted to have a special connection with the um, the Gospel of Matthew, or at least the traditions that went into the Gospel of Matthew. Some have even proposed, uh, there's a British scholar named Alan Garrow who has even proposed that the, that the Gospel of Matthew uses the Didache as one of its sources. I'm open to that. I think Matthew was written probably after the first edition of the Didache. But my own view would be that they're really drawing on a common set of traditions that show up in both the Didache and in Matthew. And it's not one is directly dependent on the other. Uh, But there's a significant number of things in the Didache that resonate with Matthew. And one of them is the Lord's Prayer. So we have the version in the section on prayer in the Didache, the version of the Lord's prayer that we have is um, most similar to Matthew's version of the Lord's prayer, which is different than Luke's version of it. And um, this is also where we get the doxology, at, or it's the first recorded instance of the doxology at the end of the Lord's prayer. So after we say, deliver us from evil, that's where it ends in the Greek manuscripts, but then, and this happens especially in the Protestant community, but also Catholics do it at Mass, will say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that little added doxology appears not to have been originally part of the Lord's Prayer based on the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. It seems to have been something that was in the liturgy that Christians got used to saying in the liturgy, and then eventually some some scribe got confused and put it in a copy of Matthew. Um, but we do find that doxology or a very close variation on it in the Didache. So that doxology is very old. It does go back to the first century, and we see it in the Didache. Oh, and we'll have links to articles on the Didache and also a link to a, where to a page that We'll further link to a bunch of translations of the Didache so you can read it for yourself. Okay.
0: Uh, Anna Fervento uh, says, my favorite episodes are of lesser known creatures. I would love to hear Jimmy's take on Black Eyed Kids or another episode on Skinwalkers. I would also like to hear more about Sky Jellyfish. Around the Industrial Revolution, these paper-thin creatures would fall from the sky dead and then dissolve within minutes or hours. I've heard the theory that they were an animal that lived in the upper atmosphere. Every episode is interesting, though, especially things I've never heard of before.
1: Um, So uh, all of those are on the list. Um, Black Eyed Kids and Skinwalkers and Sky Jellyfish. Anytime uh, you or anybody else has a topic they'd like me to consider for the future of the show, we love getting those. It also helps if you have resources that you can recommend, especially electronic ones like Ebooks or web pages or videos or things like that. And if you can send us links to those things, that would be great. In terms of like Sky Jellyfish, I find them fascinating as well um but uh i haven't been able to find a lot of good resources on them um and in particular i haven't found ones mentioning the industrial revolution connection so if you have uh web resources or ebooks or things that you can recommend on those i'd i'd love to have the links also just uh for your information there is a japanese uh, kaiju movie from the 1960s um, that features a giant sky jellyfish. And I'm blanking on the name. It is some, it's not Dalgota, but it's something similar to that. And it, it it does indeed involve this outer space jellyfish that comes to Earth and causes weird things to happen. And there's, because it's the 1960s, there's also a James Bond-like spy crime drama happening at the same time <laughs> the sky jellyfish is around. And at the end... And the sky jellyfish is like causing hurricanes and tornadoes and ripping stuff up. And then at the at the end of the movie, they find a way to deal with the sky jellyfish that solidifies it. And it falls out of the sky, a big chunk of it falling to kill the bad guys spy criminal people.
0: As as it does happen. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, topic. I've never heard of sky jellyfish. so That, that would be an interesting thing to hear uh Brooke Kennel writes, Will we ever be able to resurrect species that have gone extinct? If so, should we do so? Is this a way for us to undo damage that we've inflicted on an ecosystem, or would we just be playing God and messing uh, everything up again?
1: Sorry, um, I'm sure Brooke will forgive me. I wanted to interrupt. The name of the movie is Dogora. Dogora. D O G O R A. Dogora. And it is from 1964. So, in terms of Brooke's question, Um, I think it is uh, quite possible that we will be able to bring back species that have gone extinct. And the mammoth is a good example of one because we mammoths survived until fairly recently. Um, There were actually some dwarf mammoths living just around a thousand years ago on a kind of remote island in, um, in, uh, in like off the coast of Siberia. And they became dwarfs because of a phenomenon known as island dwarfism. Uh, when you get species on an island, there are limited resources. And so um, the, competi- the less resources that you need to use, the more you can survive. And so on islands, species that are big elsewhere, tend to diminish in size so that they don't use up as much of the resources that are available there. And this is known as island dwarfism. And so you had dwarf mammoths on this island. But there are also other mammoths that got frozen and are, are we find their bodies in Siberia. And, you know, as our ability to extract uh, DNA and, you know, re- repair it improves, it's very likely that we can bring back uh, mammoths in fact we since they're very closely related to elephants relatively speaking you can even use an el- an elephant as a host for a mammoth uh, embryo and you you wouldn't need to have an artificial womb that you would need to design, that uh, elephants would probably be able to, elephant mothers would probably be able to carry a mammoth baby to term. And so it's quite likely that we could have something like mammoths back. Dinosaurs are a little harder, but mammoths and thylacines, the so-called Tasmanian wolf or Tasmanian tiger, um, also we could could easily bring those back. uh, Although there are people who say that thylacines still exist. Um, the last one was known to have existed in the early 20th century in a zoo, but there are reported thylacine sightings periodically down in Australia and New Zealand or Tasmania. And, um, and, Who knows? Maybe they are still out there. That is one cryptid that I think actually could have a a good chance of, of being real. But even if they're not currently alive, we could bring back thylacines within the next few decades if we wanted. There is a question, though about whether we should do these things. And so we'll have links to articles on bringing back the woolly mammoth, as well as an article questioning whether we should do things like that. And also an article on this whole overall project, which is known as de-extinction.
0: All right. Uh, Daniel Cavy writes, Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I've recently taken an interest in the meta-analysis of the news coverage surrounding current events. I've been particularly interested in and amazed by the ability of national news outlets to create wildly different narratives for their audiences by selectively emphasizing, de-emphasizing, and sometimes ignoring the details of stories that don't fit neatly with the overall point of view being promoted by the network. This business model creates a lot of confusion and seems to generate its own mysteries concerning the facts and players involved with high-profile stories. Are there any historical examples of such behavior in the press that have created enticing rabbit holes to go down, or is this a 21st century phenomenon? Thank you. Oh,
1: this is by no means a 21st century thing. This is this is this is this goes way back. And in <laughs> fact, we've even covered some um, some stories like this here on Mysterious World. One of them, for example, in episode 151 on Operation Northwoods, we covered the um, how the Spanish-American War. Got started in the early twentieth century, and the Spanish American War was very much driven by uh, newspaper media at the time. There were these news, there were these newspaper wars happening between big tycoons like uh, Pulitzer and um, Hearst. Yep. Hearst, yeah. I was thinking Charles Foster Kane and going, "That's not right." Um, <laughs> well, it was William Randolph Hearst who Kane was based on. But if you look at their stories versus compared to the press in Spain you would find very different accounts of what was going on. And so uh, that's an example. Also, in episode twenty one twenty four, we talked about death at the National Hotel, where the press, where you had a bunch of people get sick or die at the National Hotel in Washington, D.C. And there were very different interpretations in the press of what was responsible for that, including maybe some, maybe we've got a political assassination going on, or maybe a madman poisoner, or maybe... It's a disease, it's natural, or whatever. People didn't know. But there are loads of other cases like this. Another would be the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which we'll talk about in the future. Um, The the Dreyfus Affair in France, the Teapot Dome scandal, Jack the Ripper. Uh, Basically, every major public controversy in hundreds of years has been handled very differently by different parts of the press. And one of the reasons for that is because historically, press outlets were not that big. And so every town, not just every town would have its own newspaper and frequently and every city would have multiple newspapers. And these were privately owned. And so, for example, in the 19th century, you in a given town, well, you'd have at least okay. there's the. There's the Democrat newspaper and there's the Republican newspaper and there are maybe some other newspapers and and they would all be spinning things in a partisan way to try to gin up sales, um, which is is why this period is often called the muckraking period or the yellow journalism period, because they were going for sales more than they were truth. And then in the 20th century you started having um, competing media that had been newly developed, like radio and television. And radio and television um, provided people with alternative sources of news, and that meant newspaper sales started going down. And so what happened was the newspapers in cities started to either fold or merge That's why you have papers with things like the Times Democrat or the Times Gazette. Originally, those were two different newspapers. There was a Times and there was a Democrat or there was a Times and there was a Gazette. And as the competing 20th century news media developed, the newspaper sales went down and they merged. And um, and that meant they needed to not be quite as partisan. As they used to be. Because if you're the only newspaper in town, you don't want just the Democrats to buy you or just the Republicans to buy you. You want everybody in town to buy you. You need those people to stay afloat. And so they would make an effort at being more objective. And the same thing was happening in the 20th century on radio and television in their news media because um, there's a limited amount of frequencies that you can transmit radio and television signals on. And so a determination was made here in the United States to say, okay, um, the the people we give licenses to to transmit on these limited frequencies need to be broadly serving the public interest. And that led to the creation of what was called the Fairness Doctrine, which said if you're going to cover an issue politically, you need to cover it in a balanced way, cover both sides. And so both in the electronic media and in newspapers, you had this unusual historical situation of we're going to try to be objective, we're going to be objective journalists and treat everything neutrally and tell both sides and stuff like that. It was very unusual from a historical perspective. And then the internet happened and the internet became a major source of news and the internet does not have the limited frequency Problem that radio or television or single town newspapers do. The internet is millions of websites that can express all kinds of different views. And as a result, um, you started having the internet sucking away traffic from radio and television and newspaper news outlets. And that means that the broad general approach. That they were taking is no longer working for them the same way. If you're, you may be the only newspaper in town, so you've got a monopoly in town, but if no one's reading your newspaper, that doesn't help you. And so, if even if you are a monopoly newspaper, you need to somehow gin up sales, and if you're going to survive, and that means that they've returned to being very sensationalistic, very partisan and trying to only appeal to a subset of the local community that they that they want to get readers from in order to survive. So we had the creation in the mid 20th century of a very unusual situation that led to the myth of the objective journalist. And then we saw it all unravel again and go back to the uh, sensationalistic partisan press that's historically normal. And so really, you can go back centuries and find the press spinning news stories very, very different ways. So I hope you found that interesting.
0: Uh, Nicholas Contreras asks, although the magisterium leaves open to interpretation the prevailing theories of evolution, what lines of argument would a serious intellectual proponent of intelligent design use if it is assumed the natural sciences prediction of the Big Bang is correct? This was partly covered in the creationism series, but thanks for a recap, if possible. So it depends on what kind of
1: design is being proposed. Now, the design argument for God's existence has been around for centuries. I mean, there are even traces of it in um, in in the Bible, um, but the uh, it really became uh, popular a few centuries ago when a guy named William Paley. Uh, produced a version of it where he said, look, the world shows evidence of design kind of like a watch does. If you were walking along a beach and you found a watch, you could infer the existence of a watchmaker. And in the same way, if you study the universe and you see the evidence of design it contains, you can infer the existence of a designer for the universe. And that's the essence of the story, but then over the course of the last few hundred years, and especially in the late 19th century and in the 20th century, you had evolution, both biological evolution and cosmological evolution, proposed as ways of explaining at least some of the elements of design that we see in the world. Um, You know, the reason that, for example, creatures have eyes, is because evolutionarily is because they convey a survival advantage and they slowly developed over over a period of millions of years and so you could now appeal to bio, to evolution by natural selection and random mutation to explain elements that previously would have been chalked up to design and so the question becomes well in modern contemporary versions of the design argument, what elements of design would you appeal to? And it's going to depend on whether you're talking biological evolution or biological design or cosmological design, or I should say astronomical design. Um, people who propose biological intelligent design will refer to aspects of, uh, of biology of different organisms that they don't think can be explained by random mutation and natural selection. And these include concepts that they refer to with names like irreducible complexity and also specified complexity. And so the idea is that organisms display certain types of complexity like this is irreducible. It wouldn't work if you broke it down. This feature of an organism wouldn't work if you broke it down. So how could it it evolve over time? It seems like you need the whole element in order to work at all. So it couldn't evolve for more primitive versions of itself. Um, In terms of astronomical or cosmological design, you get a couple of um, of you get various different things on the cosmological level. Um, there's what's known as the fine tuning argument. And the argument here is that there are certain cosmological constants that apply everywhere in the universe, like the strength of gravity, the strength of the electromagnetic force, a constant uh, known as the fine structure constant or alpha That we've talked about in previous episodes, Um, and that if any one of these constants was just a little bit different, life would be impossible in the universe. And consequently, it looks like you've got maybe as many as 26 of these constants that have to be finely tuned in order for the universe to have life. And you could then appeal to those as evidence that the universe has been finely tuned, which would imply a tuner, a designer. Um, that set those constants. There are other, there are arguments against that, but that's the basic argument, and I think it has it has merit. Um, I've also seen what you could just call an astronomical version of the design argument in his book. I want to say it's in his book, "The Fingerprint of God." Astronomer Hugh Ross has a an argument for not the design of the universe, but specifically the design of the solar system, where he argues that the the planets and the moon and various other aspects of the solar system would be so improbable to happen randomly that it would be logical to infer that the solar system specifically was designed for life. Now, I'm personally pretty skeptical of that um, because and I'm also I I like that Hugh Ross is on the side of the angels, but I don't find his interpretation of Genesis convincing at all. And I think he tends to stretch things in ways he shouldn't. And I think this is probably one of them. Um, Now, that book came out, I think, in the 80s. And so that was like 40 years ago, and we didn't even have the ability to uh, study exoplanets in other star systems at the time. So we know a lot more about this now, but given and that of itself may make the argument dated, um, but also there's just so many stars in the universe that even if you think life is extraordinarily rare... I don't think the conditions of our solar system are so unusual that you won't find a, a so similar solar system by chance anywhere in the universe. Even if the way our solar system is set up is very rare and necessary for life, there's probably more than one such solar system by random chance somewhere in the universe. And so I don't I'm not optimistic about appealing for a designer for uh, mounting an intelligent design argument for our solar system. Oh, we also will have links to an article on on intelligent design on Wikipedia. So it's going to try to do both, but probably will be slanted towards opponents of intelligent design, but that'll give you their side of the story. Then we'll also have a link to uh, the Intelligent Design page at the Discovery Institute's website, and they are big proponents of intelligent design. So you can read from both perspectives.
0: Uh, Nick S. asks, did the Arians celebrate all of the sacraments and would their sacraments have been valid? Also, did most Arians believe that Jesus was like a demigod? that he was the greatest creation of God or that he was simply an ordinary human?
1: So I've heard people say that the Arians believed Jesus was just a man. I've even heard, and this was years and years ago, but I've even heard a Catholic apologist say that. And I don't get that at all. I don't know where they're getting that because that is not what the Arians believed. The Arians believed that Jesus and the Arians for people who may not be aware were a heresy that arose in the AD 300s. They're called Arians because they were founded by a priest from Alexandria, Egypt, whose name was Arius. So Arians are followers of Arius. And Arius taught and the Arians believed that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God through whom he then made the rest of the world. And so basically, this would make Jesus a created but very powerful spiritual being, basically a super angel. And that's essentially what Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. Jehovah's Witnesses are modern Arians who think Jesus is actually the archangel Michael and is the first and greatest of God's angels. Um, The Arians did Uh, celebrate the sacraments, and the Catholic Church at the time and today did not reject the validity of their sacraments. And we will have a link to an article on Mormon baptism by the current, he wasn't when he wrote this, but he's the current head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Luis Ladaria, in in which, so back in the back a number of years ago, the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was asked to issue a ruling on is Mormon baptism valid or not, and they said no. And to explain that, uh, they had Louis Ladaria write a, a, a paper explaining why the church does not regard Mormon baptism as valid. But in the course of that paper, he notes that the church does and did regard Arian baptism as valid. Um And then he seeks, he distinguishes why, well, well, then why not Mormon baptism? Well, it's because of these things. Um, And so Arian sacraments were regarded as being valid. um, And that would indicate you don't have to have a clear understanding that Jesus is God in order to validly baptize. Um, You you could uh, simply know that, okay, there's one God, and he's the creator and Jesus said to do this and so i'm going to do it and that would have the intention of doing what the church does sufficiently for the baptism to be valid mormonism by contrast says there's not just one god and the god is not the infinite creator of everything and it has a radically different vision of what the divine is that is m- much farther from orthodox christianity than arianism was
0: Okay. Rob Leonardi asks, considering that the effects of the fall make all creation affected by sin since now death entered the scene, wouldn't this singular event be applied to everything, at least in our universe, including aliens and faraway galaxies? Well, um, it,
1: it could be. And there are theologians who would propose things like that. Um, in, and so I don't rule out that as a possibility. It's not my personal view. Um, I think that the that people have overestimated what is being discussed in in various passages in scripture, like when it says that death entered the world because of sin, it's talking about human death. But people tend to want to extend that to death everywhere on Earth, all animal plant death. And well, no, you can show plants were dying before the fall because Adam and Eve got to eat them. And the plant matter dies when you eat it because your stomach acid dissolves it. So there was already death in the world. Um, it just wasn't human death. And other theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas would agree with me on that. They would say, yeah, lions didn't eat grass before the fall. The, the nature of the predatory animals was the same as it, as it is now. It's human death that was a fact that came into the world as a result of the fall. We shouldn't project it to all life on Earth, and therefore we shouldn't project it off of Earth and say it's everywhere in the cosmos. Um, Similarly, you have other passages like where Paul talks about how creation is groaning for its redemption, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to look at that and say, you know, he may just mean human creation. You know, we could, if I said, I mean if I were to say all creation knows about the Christian faith, even if they don't believe it, I'm not talking about rocks and plants and flowers. I'm talking about humans, all human creation. And in the same way, I think all human creation is waiting for its redemption as sons of God. And so um, so I don't think that the various cosmic passages like death entered the world or creation is groaning. I don't think that um, that those are meant in the way that they're sometimes taken. And I certainly don't think that they have to be taken the way that uh, it supports these cosmic interpretations. It's perfectly possible to be talking about human death and the human creation without, uh, these other implications.
0: Okay. Jimmy, do we have time for one more, I think? Yeah. So Joseph Deschens uh, asks, I know you've tackled similar questions to this, such as the possibility of baptizing aliens or baby Yoda, but I would be curious to hear about your answer to baptizing sentient robots or AI, specifically Tom Servo and T Robot from MSD3K. I'd like to think that one day they would consider joining the church. Keep up the good, great work, Dom and Jimmy.
1: Okay, so in order to be able to baptize a robot or any other vehicle of an AI, um, it would need to be alive and it would need to have a rational soul. And I don't think that's possible um, because I don't think that robots or AIs have the structure physically needed to be alive or to have souls. There'd also be a question of if it does have a rational soul and it's displaying rationality, is it freely choosing baptism or have you just programmed it to ask for baptism? Um, And you could say there would certainly be an argument that, okay, if you've just programmed it to ask for baptism, it's not a free choice. And if it's rational, it needs to have this needs to be a free choice. Um, it's like if I did brain surgery on someone to force them to ask for baptism, that would not be a legitimate thing to do to a person. And in the same way, I shouldn't if a robot were alive and rational, I w- I couldn't just program it to do this. So there would be a whole other complication there now. Um, so I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to baptize uh, mechanical things like this. Um, But when it comes to Tom Servo and T Robot, I from Mystery Science Theater, I can easily imagine a scenario where they based on something they've seen in a movie, they decide they want to be baptized and hilarious hilarity would ensue from that. So um, I can easily imagine that scenario. But ultimately, just repeat to yourself, it's just a show I should really just relax.
0: (laughs) Although I have to say, I I, I love this image of Tom Servo and T Robots sitting in the front pew at mass doing their shtick for, during the homilies. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> sometimes people, it's good that people are not more telepathic than they are, because um, <laughs> I have been known to comment on things I'm hearing in homily, mentally. Oh, oh yeah. yes.
0: <laughs> I think many of us have. All right. So I think that is about it for us from this time. We still have many questions that we have to get through in another episode, upcoming episode of Patreon Our questions. next one. Our yeah. very next one. Yes. But uh, for now, that's it from us. We want to thank all of our patrons, and especially those who submitted questions. You can submit feedback on this episode by going to patreon.com starquest or by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page and leave some feedback there. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, send a tweet to at mys underscore world, or you can call our new mysterious feedback line at 618- Seven three eight four five one five. for any of your feedback on uh, any of the questions that we have talked about. Uh, I want to also add that uh, you can find links to the resources that Jimmy d- discussed here in this episode on our show notes at patreon.com slash starquest and eventually at sqpn.com slash mysterious when we release this episode to all listeners. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.